Pardon me while I interrupt my weekly entreaty for you to sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter for a special announcement. The It's All Journalism team will be releasing our 500th episode on Thursday, February 24th. To mark the occasion, we will be live streaming an interview with Kat Downs-Malder, the chief product officer and managing editor at The Washington Post. Kat was on our podcast way back in 2013, which was actually the first year of our podcast. She was a great guest then, and a lot has changed in the intervening years, so we've got a lot to catch up on. We will be live streaming at 12 noon Eastern time on February 24th. You can watch the live stream either on Zoom or on our Facebook page. We will only be taking questions for Kat via Zoom, so you'll need to register ahead of time to do that. You can find the registration link on our Facebook page, our website, or pinned to our At All Journalism Twitter account. Once the interview is over, it will be available for a limited time on our Facebook page, and the audio will be posted as a podcast at a later date. This should be a fun event. I'm really looking forward to catching up with Kat, and I hope you'll be there. But enough for now. Here's the latest episode. Enjoy. We are trying to think much longer than that and be around for the next multiple decades or what that looks like. We need sustainable. We can't, we can't just do one-year stints. That's not going to be a viable option. More and more media startups are relying on philanthropy to help them get by. But is it the best model for long-term sustainability, or is it just a way for newsrooms to eke out another year? I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Victor Hernandez is the Chief Content Officer at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. He's here to talk about the philanthropy and newsroom positions playbook he's written. Victor, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me. You know, I found out about this playbook. Actually, I think it was Jim Avino who had contacted us. He's been on the podcast before, and this was something you developed, I guess, through uh, West Virginia University? Yeah, that's right. I came to West Virginia University in 2020. It was an interesting opportunity. I long had the itch to continue my academic studies, but I, I just had a difficult time arriving at a point in my life when it made sense to do so, and even just the right university program. And lo and behold, 2020 felt like as opportune a year as any. It just seemed pretty early on there with the, the early stage of the pandemic that we would be at home more than we ever have before in our lives. And so an online graduate program made a lot of sense. And West Virginia University's journalism school was launching a new innovative program, a master's of science program called New Start. I was fortunate enough to be part of the inaugural class. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to go actually drive out to um, West Virginia and interview Jim talking about that program. So it's great to, you know, meet somebody who has benefited from the program and fruits of their labor. They have created something, a journalism project. So tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into journalism? How'd you end up at WBUR? You know, at the earliest stages of life, uh, growing up, I had always enjoyed writing. I was curious about the world and things that I wasn't yet familiar with. My mom worked at a local newspaper in our tiny agricultural community in California's Central Valley, where we grew up. My dad worked for the U.S. government, traveled abroad more often than he was at home. And I would, without fail, 
hound him to bring me back a newspaper from his travels wherever he went. It didn't matter that the news by the time it got back to me was a few days old or a few weeks old. I was just fascinated with what was happening in the lives of the people that resided in other towns in this country and beyond. And uh, of course, this was before the internet. And, uh, you know, now we're accustomed to scouring the globe and having news content at every level available to us at our fingertips in seconds. But this really spawned this curiosity about combining the satisfaction and enjoyment around writing with going out and exploring lives and perspectives of others. So how did I professionally arrive um, where I am today? I, I studied broadcast journalism at California State University, Fresno. Actually, while I was in school and obviously after leaving, I was working in newsrooms first in Fresno, then I worked at a broadcast television station in San Diego, eventually relocated to Atlanta for a 12 year stint at CNN, where I oversaw national news coverage and led a number of programs and partnerships driven by innovation and emerging media opportunities. And since then, I've spent time at universities and at a digital media startup, and eventually a few years ago, returned to news leadership roles first at Cascade Public Media in Seattle, and then more recently, earlier this year, relocated to New England to oversee the editorial strategies and teams at WBUR. You know, as somebody who has public media you know, experience and also had, had worked at CNN, are the newsrooms that different? Is the, the approach to uh, journalism that different? No. Look, I often say it's interesting. I, I've long held the belief that the the objectives, the challenges, the compass in which a newsroom in particular operates in terms of the goals before it are relatively the same, whether you're at a large network, whether you're at a teeny tiny market television or, or broadcast market somewhere in West Texas, whether it's working in on the for-profit commercial side or, of course, on the nonprofit, where there is dramatic difference, obviously, is the scope of which you're able to operate. You know, how big is your audience? How big is your operation? You know, how many pathways in which you have to connect with those audiences? How established you are? Is it a fairly new thing? Is it something that's been around for 100 years? But ultimately, the mission critical, you know, end-to-end production work and sort of how generally newsrooms are organized and so forth, they really are much more similar than they are different. I know that you said that, you know, when I asked you about uh, West Virginia University, you mentioned the pandemic. What was the situation at WBUR when the pandemic hit? I mean, how did the newsroom respond? Again, I, I not only did I enroll in graduate school in the middle of the pandemic, but I also took a new job and relocated the families 3,000 miles. Nothing easy. Yeah, no, nothing like taking advantage of, you know, this global emergency um, and not much else going on at the time, right? Our lives are in turmoil. <laughs> Let's just keep this ball rolling. Okay, okay here, cool. Let's pour some accelerant on these on these things. So to answer your question, and it's very similar, whether it was in Seattle or or what's happening in Boston or, or newsrooms in between, you know, it completely turned the ball game upside down in terms of what it meant for many of us to gather and produce news how we do this remotely full-time, you know, the sort of cultural communication trust 
dynamic effects this has on our capacities to produce news daily and, and reach communities and the constraints of even just being out in the community and conducting interviews. Everything was thrown into a blender in terms of what the new rules of engagement looks like. It really, it really was quite upending. But also, I have to say, in a lot of ways, just purely, I mean, disregard the sort of emergency and the 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 peril that this pandemic has brought so many millions of lives in all of us to some degree, but just the recalibration that the pandemic era has brought to what it means to produce daily news and also the relationship and the vital sustenance that we provide to communities that particularly in harrowing times of emergency are in such need of of credible news sources. It has been so eye-opening. This has allowed me to really change my position and my thinking, for example, on a lot of areas, but one in particular, I believed quite firmly that prior to a pandemic, that a newsroom really physically needed to be together in order to be its optimal operational self. I mean, certainly reporters and journalists have been operating from cafes and from hotels and from pulling over the side of the vehicle to file a story for for many, many years. But to have the majority of an operation displaced and and working distributed and, and virtually no physical interaction between anyone, I didn't think that would be conducive in a modern way. And, and in fact, it in a lot of ways has proven that it can work in newsrooms of all sizes. Yeah. And that, that is one of the actual very fruitful things that came out of this. There were a lot of, a lot of stories, journalists patting themselves on the back about, oh, I was able to do this, that, and the other thing in those first couple of months. But I think the long term the understanding that there were journalists out there who were using a lot of this technology to, you know, report remotely or, you know, I'm going to go cover this thing. I'm not going to be able to make it to the newsroom. I'm going to handle it this way. Those instances seem to be more like exceptions to the rule. There wasn't a, a sort of universal application across the newsroom. But, you know, suddenly we were all having to use those tools and we got to be a lot better at them. And then we began to see that they, I think they create a lot of freedoms for us. I think a lot of people that I've spoken to have been very, you know, had the same sentiments that you have, that it kind of opened their eyes to a different way of working. And I think a lot of newsrooms are, are really, you know, looking hard about, you know, what do we need in a newsroom and what presence do we need? You know, I think on the one hand, I should say, on the other hand, there are people who have questioned, you know, how do you do mentoring in a situation like this? Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that the newsroom is supposed to be a place for young journalists to go and and learn by working next to other journalists. I mean, is it physical space or is it just, you know, that connection that we're still able to have through Slack, through Zoom, through telephone? I don't think there's necessarily an answer at this point. Uh, People have picked up these skills and I think they, they see the value of them now. I'm with you. I agree and wholeheartedly believe, I think most of us do, that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that is the new way forward. But I do think that the general sentiment amongst those who get it and are going to foster an area where folks can thrive is an expressed theme of, of flexibility. 
it's going to be different. We're currently, and we started bringing staff back at WBUR, we started bringing staff back after Labor Day this year. And, you know, we have the good fortune of we're part of Boston University. We are located on the campus in, in Brookline, Mass. And we've got these world-class testing centers where we can have a very strict testing regimen where we're all, not only is everyone vaccinated and provide such proof, but we also are bound to do weekly testing. It's a really nice safeguard to have. It's a peace of mind, but it's also a fail-safe that something can be fairly contained if there is an outbreak, but it's not something that every institution has. So we've fortunately been able to, to accelerate the return to the office for those who would prefer that. And we open that up on a volunteer basis for the majority of the staff. There are, of course, production personnel in order to produce live radio broadcast. You need engineers, you need hosts in a studio for the most part. But for the other 90% of the staff, they have the option and some want to come in a few days a week, some want to come in five days a week, and others don't want to come in at all. But the point is we can accommodate. And the other point is we wouldn't do well, I think, with the hard and fast rule of this is what everybody's doing and take it or leave it. It's not going to work that way going forward. No. And I think there was a sense of uh, younger people who are digitally native, who have been you know, online you know, since they're in grade school and have learned a lot and are comfortable in ways that we aren't naturally comfortable with the Internet because it came to us later in our lives. I mean, I think they kind of understood that the quality of life issues about, you know, what an office is, what the expectations are, and what sort of flexibility they want to have in their careers. I think those were the conversations before the pandemic came. And now that we have the pandemic, I think we're all sort of looking at that. And that it affects so many other things. I know that there were stories here in, in the Washington, D.C. area about, you know, what does that mean for public transportation? What does that mean for, for transportation? What does it mean for commercial real estate? Yeah, everything's sort of up for grabs, but it's not going to be back. You know, that that was the other thing is you know, we were halfway through the the pandemic and we were all sort of realizing, you know, things aren't going to get back to normal. Normal is going to be very different. Well, you're exactly right, Michael. And I, and I will also bring it back to the beginning of this with West Virginia University, because you said you've got the upper hand in this relationship here, our new friendship, and that you've done something I haven't. You've done two things. Number one, you visited West Virginia. I still have yet to. And number two, you've met Jim Ivino, our advisor to the program. I have yet to. We were originally scheduled to descend on Morgantown, West Virginia, a couple of times through the one-year New Start program to convene as a cohort and, and to do some workshops and, and to graduate because of the pandemic, of course, we have not. Someday we hope to get together and meet in person. But the point is, education has been reset. And it was not something you talked about the digital natives in a, in a younger generation. For us of a certain vintage generation, education is radically different. And guess what? I loved it. I basked in the remote learning and the asynchronous approach to be able to do the work and the assignments on top of a 50 to 60 hour work week on top of four kids, a wife, and so forth. I wouldn't have been able to do this in a traditional sense to go back to school and get a, a master's in an intense program. But fortunately, technology and other modern invention allows for us to do these things on our time from afar and so forth. 
Yeah. And I'm right there with you with the going back to school. I went back to school when I was 50 to get my master's degree because I needed, knew that I needed to pick up these digital skills. You know, my, the, I went to a weekend program, which is like an eight hour class on 60 mm. Saturdays, but that was an adapted one. And there were people, you know, and the program was also offered to people who could do it in the evenings. And, and I'm pretty sure they're doing it remotely. I know they did it remotely last year because of the pandemic. And just a, a footnote, <laughs> I found myself between jobs when I went out to West Virginia University and I was looking for ways, you know, I was going to get this podcast out of the house before I go insane. And so I reached out when they contacted me and I said, eh, it's not that far from where I live to West Virginia. I want to go out and make a day of it. And that turned out to be a really nice thing. I got to see another college, another uh, journalism school. And they were really excited about the programs that they were doing, particularly the program. It's not the same one that you're in, but the one about helping to sort of reestablish small newsrooms, or I shouldn't say small news, newsrooms, local newsrooms that are legacy to particular communities, and they need like new editors, new publishers mm. to, to come in. And so they've got a program that's facilitating that. But let's talk about actually why you're supposed to be here. You developed a philanthropy and newsroom positions playbook while as a student at West Virginia University. Tell me about that. You bet. It was quite a passion project through the capstone project work required through the New START program. And it really was a wonderful intersection of needing to satisfy a major research endeavor of the university, but also solving for a right now relevant challenge that I was facing in my professional life. And I felt like those around me were also trying to navigate those waters. And so it really, it really did prove instrumental in furthering acute awareness of better ways to do things with regards to philanthropy and expanding upon your newsroom mission and your capacity to deliver on that mission. So the idea for the playbook came about in late 2020 while I was at Cascade Public Media in Seattle. And as the executive editor there overseeing a diverse newsroom of some 30 journalists specializing in broadcast and digital reporting, we were often exposed to grant opportunities and funding opportunities to add to the scope of our newsroom in a temporary termed basis. And I was new to public media. Again, my background is coming from commercial broadcast television stations coming from CNN, where I was at for many years, leading news gathering and digital programs. And so new to the space, I wasn't clear on the best way to proceed and how to apply for certain programs, what we would be eligible for, where do we want to place our bets, and then most importantly, what the proper sizing was of what these impacts should look like within the greater sum of our newsroom. For example, what I mean by that is when I arrived in this role, about 12% of our newsroom staff were sourced, were funded by foundations and by grant support. And I was told at the time, sort of through the whispers and walls and asking around, that that was a good number, that 10 to 15% was a healthy ratio to maintain because anything north of that would be very taxing and difficult to, to sustain over time, you know, because these programs, these grant applications and so forth, I'm sure those listening are probably a bit familiar at this point, they require 
quite a bit of work in terms of the process and, and the reporting and the conversations and the, the information collection and so forth. And so, so to be able to sustain these, you know, can easily become a full-time job for, for someone who's supposed to be heading up a news department. But I wondered, where is that 12%, you know, where does it come from? Who came up with it? How recent was it? I looked, I of course Googled, I looked at journalism publications. I called friends who were in similar roles elsewhere that had been doing it for a lot longer. And there just was not alignment on what the appropriate balance of how many of these roles you should have and what the best strategies were to not just take these one or two year positions, but ultimately to develop them into fully operationalized roles within your organization so that you weren't just getting one shot wonders, a nice boost, but then you come back down to earth in a year, but rather this is just a bit of runway to allow you to make a a smart business case or gather the necessary fundraising to be able to implement this ongoing. And I just couldn't find an industry guidebook. I couldn't, there wasn't anything that I was aware of, at least recently, to develop these frameworks and to measure the impact once they arrived, these new reporters, once they arrived, of how you measure and provide for success in what they're doing temporary, again, so that they can become sustainable over a longer period. And so I said, hey, if I'm asking these questions, I'm sure there's lots of others out there similar. Why don't I just pull together a bunch of best practices? It ultimately was an excuse to talk to more than a dozen interesting news leaders, journalists, foundation leads, and talk about what they're seeing, what's working, what are they trying, where are they seeing breakdowns, what are they struggling with, and collect that into a single playbook experience for the industry to draw from. We've had a couple of people on the podcast who were working journalists on, I think they were Report for America grants, where you know they were at some radio station or some some website and they were, you know, covering, you know, homelessness or diversity issues regarding the uh, the response to the pandemic and things like that, healthcare. So, yeah, my experience just in doing this podcast is when we talk about those type of roles, they're these sort of plug-in roles. These are nice to have roles mm. that we're going to bring somebody in who's going to focus on X or we're going to have somebody in come in who's going to we're not going to have to pay but is going to help us to fill whatever this particular role is for a, a limited period of time. So I guess what you're saying is that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You can try to get another grant or you can, you know, maybe, as you said, make a case. This person that we brought into our newsroom that we're paying for in a grant, we either to find a more grant money for them or, you know, find a way that we can pay them to keep them because they make us better somehow. Well, I think it it really depends on what one's goal is. And I'm afraid that there are still some out there whose goal it is annually is to survive another year. And if it is simply that, for let's just hang on for dear life and see if we can make it through another 12 months, then these so-called one-shot wonders where you, you add an extra reporter to your ranks and you can do X number more stories and so on, will help you achieve just that. But I hope that there aren't very many of those left and that we are trying to think much longer than that and be around for the next multiple decades or what that looks like. We need sustainable. We can't can't just do one-year stints. That's not going to be a viable option. 
a lot of these programs, you know, as I mentioned with Report to America, they're, they're sort of tied to a particular issue. Is that sort of by and large what a lot of these grant-supported positions are? You know, a foundation has a particular interest in some area and they want to see some news outlets cover it more. You know, that's why they're going to provide this grant. Is that the, the general thing or is, it, or is that sort of a mix? It tends to be a mix. I will say that over the last couple of years, it does appear, though, that the better success model, the better chance for effectiveness in achieving a a longer sustainable runway with these roles and reaching new audiences tends to be outlets that position these resources in a more narrowly focused role. There are still general reporters out there doing this on behalf of a termed grant position or or from foundation support, something from philanthropy. But general reporters tend to not leave the lasting impression in the way that the niche narrow focus do in, in terms of really connecting with key stakeholders. And I would say the key stakeholders are the communities themselves, the diversity of coverage, and then the institutions that tend to support this work. And a really good example of that is I spoke with the folks at El Perico, which is in Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska, and it's a bilingual community newspaper. And they have been utilizing Report for America reporting fellows for the last couple of years. They have one currently, Bridget Fogarty, and her sole mission is focused on immigration in Omaha. That's what she covers. And She's not doing breaking news and she's not doing a storm, you know, weather updates or something. She is there and that is where they will really make the biggest dent. The other great example of that, which I think is, a, is one of the success stories that I've been able to learn about is I've spent some time this past year with Eve Zuckoff. Eve covers climate change for WCAI Cape Cod. She's featured heavily in my playbook. She began her stint at CAI as an RFA fellow. She was focused on climate change and her and her editor were very disciplined in really focusing her work solely on climate effects on this particular region. And very recently, in fact, earlier this year, because her reporting has propelled audience success in new ways to reach a different audience, to be able to gather enough not only community support, but support from their parent organization who owns WCA. They all believe in the work that Eve's doing. They think the business case is there. Eve was converted. She was offered a job and converted to full-time permanent staffer. So she, she's no longer RFA. She's let that go and she's, she's on staff. And I think that's really a great example of short-term investment leading to long-term viability through reporting and the community responding in a positive way. So going back to the, to the playbook, you know, how can newsrooms use it? What information does it, is it providing? You know, it's, could you read I'm it hesitant. to me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's, let me, uh, let, let me, uh, let me just give you a quick download. Look, I would say this, I don't want to oversell the playbook in the sense that one thinks that they can peruse it and come away with the 10 things you must do to grow your newsroom by a third via philanthropy support. It is, of course, not that simple. What the playbook is, is a collection of perspectives at different levels. I mean, I, I spent time with Aaron McIntyre, 
her and her husband purchased their hometown paper in 2019, the Oray County Plain Dealer in Western Colorado. They added an RFA fellow two years ago. So that was their third employee. They literally have three people that work there, but they are making it work and they're receiving support and growing subscriptions because of this community reporting resource. And so, so we talk about how they're making it work and how they support their reporter and how they rotate. They're on their second round of doing this. And then I spend time with Joe Chieta at the Fresno Bee, the editor of the Fresno Bee. And, and they've got almost a dozen reporters now that are on staff via philanthropy support. They're standing up desks focused on education, focused on housing, focused on investigative, and they are funding important community journalism through philanthropy, and and they are seeing those impacts. And so you're going to hear about how these different leaders navigate from a very tiny scale to a larger newsroom scale, what that looks like, who's responsible for it, who are they turning to. I've got a playbook chock full of resources with background and data and who are funding these things and at what points of the year and what is sort of critical within the application information being provided. But it is not a, you know, magic bullet for all. It's going to be something that you use as a backstop to determining what's the strategy we need to employ. What do we need out of this role? Ultimately, what are we trying to gain out of it? And then how do we give ourselves the best chance to position our work and our operation to go out and secure these resources. So are there any particular ethical considerations for a newsroom when they start looking to bring in an employee like this? For example, I know that there were people who've written about over the last couple of years, you know, looking at the history of some of the foundations that have stepped up to support journalism, support newsrooms through donations, through, through grants and through funding, have some, you know, questionable things in their history. You know, what are your thoughts? I think these are important questions to continually ask ourselves and of the industry as as we see best practices and, and other practices evolve and you know sort of further experimentation. I you know I think we need to be obviously very sensitive around uh, certain ethical obligations that we have in the journalism industry. There is of course a concern and an awareness of of the commitment of what that commitment looks like to cover a particular area or a community, a topic within news that is funded by external sources, just in terms of how that philanthropic support was gained, like what what promises were made and whether there's an appearance of potential influence or conflict. And, you know, the vast majority, virtually all reputable media institutions, we we are going to respect the these fine lines and, and keep the, the firewall in place. But but just because we understand that, we adhere to these principles, quite often our audiences, our readers, our listeners, they're not aware of the tenets of our ethical codes and what goes into it and, and so forth. So transparency and being as open possible and how these things were arrived at, these relationships and the support and how there's and independence that's maintained throughout. I mean, these are all paramount to uh, to our overall commitment. So how can people access your playbook? Well, there's a link to it on newstart.media. 
through West Virginia University and Jim Ivino does an, a tremendous job of maintaining a weekly newsletter through Newstart that's got media highlights and thought-provoking articles and things that he's writing about or, or the group that he leads is writing about these group of graduate students that we're all participating in and he's curating interesting articles from around the industry. So so you should sign up for the newsletter. You should go to newstart.media. You can follow it on all the popular social media. Also, the Pointer Institute, Kristen Hare from Pointer did a Q&A recently with me. And so it's linked throughout. And so there's a little bit more on a Pointer piece from early November that is out there. This has been a great conversation. I think we learned a lot about this. We learned a lot about, you know, the pandemic. We, we talked about, we covered a lot of ground. I hope that at some point you make it out to West Virginia, maybe to a Mountaineers football game. I mean, you are technically a Mountaineer now, so get around to, to meeting a gym in person, maybe at a conference even, or again, at, at West Virginia. Victor, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.